0: Less too far we wonder Love sweet voices calling yonder Shine little glower Glimmer, glimmer Hey there, don't get dimmer, dimmer
1: Light the path
0: below above And lead us on to
1: love Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files A series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood As told by actress Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com And joining me today... He is the man who played Captain Gain in the 1999 film One Man's Hero, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm doing great now. This this movie I remember because this is the one I shot in Durango, uh, Mexico. Because they wanted to. One Man's Hero took had to do with the Irish the the Mexican American War. Right,
1: One Man's Hero tells the little-known story of the St. Patrick's Battalion, a group of mostly Irish and other immigrants of the Catholic faith who deserted to Mexico after encountering religious and ethnic prejudice in the U.S. Army during the Mexican-American War.
0: This is where I lived at the El Gubernador Hotel, which used to be, truthfully, the maximum security prison in Durango, but they thought they would remake it into this hotel and right across the street was the hospital and durango was famous for a couple things one is they had the deadliest scorpions in the world and these scorpions apparently weren't really big they were little scorpions and if you got bit or stung you get stung by a scorpion if you got stung by one of these scorpions you had one hour to get the anti-venom before you died and so the hospital for the anti-venom was right across the street from the El Gubinador, and they just had a flashing red scorpion out of neon on the side of the building like Eat at Joe's. So in case you got stung, you would know that's where you had to go very quickly. But uh, I did have the best steak I ever ate in my life in Durango, and it is also where they, on the street, they sold live bug tacos, this is you right. would yeah is is that okay for you?
1: No, I'm glad. I'm glad the movie was so memorable, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> as opposed to the as opposed to the accommodations. I think but, we did uh, a
0: podcast where I mentioned some stories that happened to me. And the, oh, the two kinds of nothing. You will yeah, yeah yeah listen to the two kinds of nothing, and there are some stories about the El Gubernador.
1: Well, before we begin today's festivities in the Tewelovsky uh, Stephen, we should mention that. Uh, we know a lot of people like listening to the Tobolowsky Files with their families and with their children. A lot of children like these stories. Yeah. Uh, find a lot of meaning in them. This week is an episode that you might not want to do that. Uh, there is adult content in this episode and uh, it's not super appropriate for kids. So you should probably turn this off if you're with kids and listen to it another time when you're alone. Right, Stephen?
0: I think that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea. It, it's, it amuses me, but I wouldn't want my kid to hear it.
1: All right. All right. Well, all that said, Stephen, you know, uh, since you've been doing the Tobolowski Files, I, I like to think that the, the Tobolowski Files opened up all these crazy doors for you, you know, to speak at various conferences and uh, you know, do various uh, gigs that you've done over the years. Uh, whether or not that's true, you know, I, I don't really need to know. But, uh, my, you know, my question for you is as you've uh, gone about your travels, are there any favorite conferences you've done, you know, that uh, are, are speaking gigs, you know, any place you've been to that maybe you haven't anticipated or that you really appreciated being at?
0: Well, yeah. Well, thanks to you, David. I, th- I think the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the places we spoke at working on Primary Instinct. I think I did a story at a coffee shop. Uh, yeah, in Ca- Se-
1: Cafe Fiore in Seattle, yeah. And
0: I did another story at a school there in preparation when we were shooting.
1: Yeah, Seattle Pacific University, great, yeah. great location. Yeah.
0: That was phenomenal. Uh, of course, in Dallas, my home, hometown, I've gotten to speak at many odd locations that I love. And, and there's some old movie theaters that have asked me to come and speak there, maybe go on with Jimmy Vaughn. That would be hilarious to do a show at the Texas Theater where I, I used to go to kid matinees. But, but this this year... This was very special. Before the book tour began, I had a chance to do a story for Michael Hawley at the EG Conference in Carmel, California. Uh, the well, EG... no, Stephen,
1: what is what is the EG Conference?
0: Yeah, I think uh, what people have described it as is kind of Ted meets Hollywood, something like that. It, it's, it's very unique. Uh, it's always special. It's the only place, David, I know where you could talk to the investigator for the Kennedy assassination, which I did. Then you could turn around and talk to an astronaut who just came down from the International Space Station. And then turn around one more time and talk to the great cellist, Philip Shepard, who will compose a piece for you on the spot, which he did for me this year, taking the numbers from your zip code and turning them into musical intervals. The conference is always a source of relentless inspiration. At this year, the conference happened right before Easter, and that was during the Passover season. Sidebar, Passover season is code for you can't eat bread for eight days. I know that doesn't sound like too high of a bar, but you're also not supposed to eat any grain products. So no cereal, no pasta, no pizza, no muffins, nothing fried because the crust. And of course, no beer, whiskey or vodka. You can eat vegetables and fruit like a chimp. That works for a day or two. But then you resort to a diet of matzah, peanut butter, and cheese. How many ways can you say constipation? For Passover, I usually like to do a little research to try to dig up interesting facts to inflict on my family during the Seder. Last year, I investigated as to whether there was any scientific evidence that the ten plagues of Egypt really happened. Archaeologists have uncovered two interesting Egyptian writings that describe cosmological events that match several of the plagues listed in the Bible, from the Nile turning to blood, to the spread of disease, and even to the mysterious period of darkness. Some scientists have theorized that the plagues, as described in the Torah, could have been caused by natural cataclysmic events such as an earthquake or a volcanic explosion. Well, it just so happens that there is geologic evidence that there was a series of catastrophes that occurred sometime between 1450 BCE and 1627 BCE caused by the eruption of the Santorini volcano in the Aegean. This disaster destroyed cities in Crete and could have dealt the fatal blow to the Minoan culture. While I was at the EG conference, I got to listen to archaeologist Maria Anastasia Dow. Her specialty was the Minoan culture. I thought this is the perfect opportunity to ask the expert if there was a possibility that the plagues of Egypt and the volcanic explosion that turned the Aegean civilization upside down could be related. We never got to the answer. Probably because I phrased my question wrong. I asked Maria, is there a period between the thirteenth and the fifteenth century BCE, which is one guess as to when the exodus could have occurred, where there is a blank spot in the record, where there could have been a major cataclysm that wiped out everything? Maria smiled. She explained that I got the premise wrong. Completely wrong. She said, There is never a blank spot when there is a great destruction. That is when we, the archaeologists, see everything. She said, of course these times are bad for the people, but this is when we learn so much. When people are in a great destruction, they have no time. They leave everything behind, their dishes, their furniture, their toys, even themselves if they cannot escape. The great destructions are what science lives for. We often name time periods after terrible destructions, like the Ice Age. My search for the ten plagues was put on hold by Maria's answer. I had to run to the airport to catch my flight home, but I could not stop thinking about what she said. The great destructions are valuable because they are the times in which we see everything. I thought back through high school. American and world history, it was true. Whether it was the Revolution or the Civil War or the Great Depression, the World Wars, Vietnam, 9-11, our past is often defined by the great destructions. And it's the same with my stories on the podcast. Broken neck, heart surgery, held hostage at gunpoint, the Cooper system. Like the scars on my body, they were defined by catastrophe. And then I arrive at the Forestburg Summer Theater. What I thought was the high point of my college years, a road trip with my old roommate Jim McClure, turned into a disaster. Jim vanished and left me deserted in the Catskill Mountains, living out of my suitcase in a plywood cubbyhole above an old barn. Maria, the archaeologist, was so right. In a period of destruction, everything remains. In this case, memory. And just like slavery and the horrors of the book of Exodus led to freedom and revelation at Mount Sinai, my summer in upstate New York changed my life in ways I still can't comprehend. And here's one I just came up with as I was writing this story. I thought I knew all about acting when Jim and I were on our way to Forestburg. Not that I always succeeded. In fact, I was probably pretty bad, as John Arnone tried to tell me in the kindest possible way after my freshman audition at SMU. I thought I knew the procedure one goes through to act. You audition, you get the part, you rehearse, you dress, rehearse, you open, you close. That was it. I wasn't even close. There are many variables. And in acting... And in writing, the variables defined the experience. On Broadway, my audition for Mornings at Seven was not much more involved than my audition for The Importance of Being Earnest at Forestburg. One scene, no more than ten minutes of time invested. Of course, I'm not counting the mountains of stress and woe for Broadway. After you get the part, on Broadway you have eight to ten weeks to rehearse a play. In addition, you get two or three weeks of technical rehearsal to add lights and sound, more for complicated shows. There was a difficult period when we rehearsed during the day, did a preview performance in the evening, and then rehearsed some more. Sometimes we worked to 1 a.m. Then we opened, and then we ran for almost a year. We were lucky. At the Forestburg Summer Theater, you staged a play in three days. Three Days The fourth day you did a tech rehearsal on stage, the fifth day you added costumes, you opened on the sixth. I could not help seeing the parallels to the rehearsal schedule at Forestburg to the creation of the universe in the Bible. But in Genesis you don't have matinees. And in Summerstock, you don't get a day of rest. But everything is a prison, and everything is a doorway. Yes, the schedule was impossible. It invited disaster. It led to mental illness. And yet, it built incredible muscles for doing theater. The enormous difficulty of pursuing art in the mountains of New York made the pursuit of entertainment in Hollywood seem more doable. The variables define an experience. Even in a catastrophe, one of the unexpected pleasures of Forrestburg was being Tony's assistant technical director. I had spent a semester working on lights at SMU. That taught me how to use a wrench and take orders. I helped Tony hang pipe, rewire old lighting instruments, replace burned-out light bulbs. Tony was the best boss I ever had. He was always calm. He was always instructive. He had a great sense of humor, and he had a truck. After work, Tony would drive us to a bar down the road called The Galley. The galley was an old-time bar filled with old-time people. There was an old-time jukebox that still played three songs for a quarter. The bartender was an older man who was a retired cop who once upon a time had worked in the theater district in New York City. His favorite song was Mandy. I would often include it as one of my three songs. He would silently nod to thank me. He'd stop working as Barry Manilow hit the refrain with the orchestra soaring behind him. I was certain he was going to break down into tears when Barry sang, You came and you gave without taking. He said, Barry Manilow is the greatest recording artist of our day. Listen to that. You feel every word he sings. And the bartender touched his heart. You feel it right here. The other popular song in the jukebox was Brandy, not to be mistaken for Mandy. Everyone at the bar loved Brandy, I assume because both the bar and the song had nautical themes. But the bartender was not as disposed to Brandy as Mandy. Once Brandy was playing as the bartender was refilling our drinks, he looked up at me with disapproval and said under his breath, She's a whore. My favorite song was Glowworm, sung by the Mills Brothers. I played it as much as Mandy. The bartender approved of my musical tastes and often gave Tony and me free refills. My drink of choice at the galley was something called Applejack. It had the appearance of a man's drink. It was served in a shot glass. And yet, it had the fruity tang of a girl's drink. Tony explained that Applejack was a specialty from the area. It used all of the rotten apples from local orchards, Farmers took all the apples they couldn't sell. They buried them in the ground. The apples would continue to rot. Then winter would come. The ground freezes. Before the big thaw, the farmers dig up the barrels. Whatever was slushy, they would sell as so-so Applejack. But whatever was still liquid was pure alcohol. That was the good stuff. Applejack will get you very drunk in a short amount of time. Tony said he knew it was time to go home when I began to sing Glowworm. The first show of the season was a bill of two one-act plays, and this was a very popular format in the 70s. People seemed to lose patience with the theater and preferred their entertainment in smaller bites. Evenings were tied together by a common theme, such as two anti-war plays or two Sam Shepard plays. At Forestburg, they discarded the idea that an evening needed a cohesive theme at all and offered the incomprehensible pairing of an English 19th century operetta, Cox and Box, with Edward Albee's satire of modern family life in The American Dream. Tony and I watched rehearsals. The dancing and singing was followed by the cursing and the swearing. Tony would look at me and raise his eyebrows. Our boss, Al Mazel, would wander through the theater to watch a few minutes of rehearsal. He'd leave muttering, Yeah, they won't know what hit them. Later, Mazel told me he loved the twin bill. He said, Some people like music. Some people like a kick in the pants. Maisel was right. The shows did have a lot of entertainment value, and at the end of the evening, I felt like someone had kicked me in the pants. We were ready for opening night. But opening night wasn't ready for us. We had a show. We had an audience. Mazel got on stage and delivered his welcoming speech that had been honed over the decades. The house lights dimmed. Tony gave me the cue to raise the curtain. I pulled. The music began for the opening number. But the curtain only went up three feet and stopped. I pulled harder. Nothing happened. I looked back at Tony in the booth. He was gesturing for me to get the curtain up, but I couldn't. I ran out of the booth to get help. Maybe we could have dealt with catastrophe number one with a second speech to the audience and a quick look at the curtain's pulley system. But before we could do anything, the actors decided to begin the play. It would have been bad enough to perform behind a partially raised curtain so the audience only saw characters from the thighs down. But for some reason, the actors thought the better choice was to duck walk onto the stage so they could be seen. They sang, they danced, they acted, all while squatting under the partially raised curtain. I had not taken any hallucinogenic drugs at this stage of my life. And now that I have, I could say I didn't have to. This performance of Cox and Box, with actors duck-walking around the stage for 50 minutes, wearing cravats and breeches and singing The Buttercup, broke my mind. At intermission, Tony climbed up the big ladder and saw that a piece of lumber had fallen from the roof and was jamming the curtain. He pulled it down and all was good. Tony looked at the board, then looked at me and said, Gremlins. The American dream went on without a hitch. We decided to call opening night a bad dress rehearsal and move our real opening night to our second night. That plan worked until we got to the second night. A small explosion somewhere on the property cut off all power to the barn. The audience of 30 extremely old theater lovers sat in the dark. Maisel went on stage with a flashlight and announced, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As you could see... "'We are experiencing some slight technical difficulties, "'but in the immortal words of Shakespeare, "'the show must go on,' the audience applauded. "'Maisel opened the side door of the theater, "'drove his car up and turned on his headlights. "'The shaft of high beams cut across the stage. "'The pianist started the overture for Cox and Box "'as the theater began to fill with automobile exhaust. "'Tony cranked out the emergency flashlights "'and ran up to me backstage.' It won't be long before the people start passing out from carbon monoxide. Let's see if this works. Tony handed out flashlights to me and five apprentices and said, Go down on the first row and use these like spotlights to cover the main action. Tony, how do you want us to divide up what gets lit? Tony laughed, That's your job, Stephen. You're the assistant technical director. Tony ran outside and drove his truck up to the side door and turned on his brights as well. It was remarkable. The actors in both plays performed in the dark, in a theater filled with automobile exhaust. But the audience watched and applauded. No one complained. I got the idea that the reason why the rehearsal schedule was so impossible was that it didn't matter what ended up on stage. The audience was usually too old to leave the theater once they got there. I had started rehearsing the importance of being earnest with Ron Troutman. We read through the play with the knowledge that in six days we would open. We started blocking when an apprentice came in with a note for Ron. Ron looked at it and smiled. This isn't for me. Tobo, this is for you. What is it, Ron? I said. Beth is here. She called the big house. Tony went to get her at the bus station. So gang... Let's keep rehearsing while we can, because I have a feeling soon we're going to be losing our Stephen for a few minutes. Precious minutes. Minutes we need to put Act One on its feet. I get it, Ron. I'll be quick. And thank you. I kept rehearsing, but like a dog, I kept listening for the sound of Tony's truck on gravel. And there it was. And there I went. I ran out of the rehearsal building, through the waist high weeds, across the dusty drive to Tony's truck. The passenger door opened, and there was Beth. I held her and lifted her up into the air. She was laughing so hard. I put her down a second and took a look. This was a different girl than the one I left in Texas. This Beth looked like a character from Tom Sawyer. Her hair was pulled back in pigtails. She was wearing blue jean overall cutoffs and a white T-shirt, and she was skinny, 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 and covered with freckles. Beth, is that you? Yes, Steve she said. What happened to your face? I tried to get tan. I don't tan. I freckle. Do I look horrible? No, you look like Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Is that good? It is now. Let's find out where your room is. Al Mazel's wife Sally showed us to Beth's lodging. As I suspected, it was downstairs next to the theater in one of the old horse stalls. They had taken out the oat buckets and replaced them with as many wooden bunk beds as each small room could hold. Beth was lucky. She got a bottom bunk. We laid down on the stained single mattress together. There was room if we both lay on our sides. This was not what I was expecting, said Beth. Yeah, I said, that's the charm of this place. Everything about it is beyond expectation. Well, how is the food? Beyond expectation. The plays? The same, I said. Well, maybe I could stay with you up in your room? Well, actually, Beth, I was going to ask you if I could stay with you here. What, is your room worse than this? My bedroom is four feet high. What? Yep. Four feet wide, Beth asked? No, high. That's how tall it is. That's impossible, Beth said. No, it's not. Well, how do you get into bed? Crawl, I said. Beth started laughing. No, I started laughing too. Yes. Was this why McClure left? No, I laughed harder. He didn't even stay long enough to see the bedrooms. Oh, God, Beth said, could you imagine? Oh, he would have killed Maisel, I said. Who's Mazel? Beth asked. He's the lunatic who runs this place. How do we end up here, Beth asked. Because we love the theater. And? And what, Beth asked. And we love each other. I gotta go. I open in four days. We haven't blocked the play yet, and no one knows their lines. Well, how are you going to do it, Beth asked. I don't know. Divine intervention? Maybe we won't have to do it. Maybe a group of stray cows will wander into the theater in the middle of Act One, and Maisel will hand out milking stools to the audience, and they'll think it's all part of the play. The audience here have remarkably low expectations. I got out of the bed banging my head on the wooden frame of the top bunk, Damn! That hurt. Okay, I gotta go. You'll meet Jean at dinner. She's great. I like Tony, Beth said. Sort of quiet. He's mysterious. Yeah, but don't be fooled, I said. I think he's some kind of genius. That night after rehearsal, Beth and I sat with Tony and Jean among stacks of Wonder Bread. Beth picked up a slice and started buttering it. Tony, Jean, and I started snickering. What is it? Beth asked. Nothing, I said. I could tell Jean liked Beth right away. And I was relieved. It always means a lot when people you hardly know approve of your romantic choices. Uh, Beth, I need to warn you about dinner, I said. Why? The menu was a little off the beaten track. Just then, our cook, Mr. Watson, started setting out platters of fried pork chops on the table. There were bowls of spicy boiled greens and little potatoes with parsley. Wow, said Tony. Food looks pretty good to me, said Beth. Jean leaned in. This isn't what we usually eat. Well, what do you usually eat? asked Beth. Uh, different things, said Jean. Things we shouldn't discuss at the table. Jean turned to Tony. You see, there should be a rule that you can't serve anything you can't talk about at the table without losing your appetite. Well, then we would never eat snails, said Tony. You know there's something not right about this? About what, asked Jean. Pork chops, said Tony. I'm not sure if Tony was psychic or if his mind was working on a cognitive level beyond the rest of us. But the next day, Mr. Watson vanished. He cleared out at dawn. Sally and Al Mazel had to make breakfast for the entire company, now about 20 of us. They managed to boil up a huge pot of oatmeal. Today was the official start of the season. The rest of the apprentices were dropped off by their parents. The last of the resident artists arrived from Manhattan. One of the arriving artists was a young, old man by the name of Howard Roller. I say young old man because I was one myself until I just became an old man with memories. I would bet Howard was probably in his 20s at the time. He looked older. He had a distinguished bearing. He was tall, had wavy brown hair and a trim mustache and goatee. Even if Howard wore jeans and a t-shirt, he would look like he was wearing a smoking jacket. I saw Howard arrive. He was a happy man. Excited to be a resident artist doing theater over the summer? And then the screaming began. The reason Howard was here is that he was brought in to play certain parts this season. One of those parts was my part, Algernon Moncrief in the importance of being earnest. While Ron and I and the rest of the cast dove into Act 2 in the rehearsal shed, Howard, suitcase in hand, was given the news in the driveway and the shouts of rage echoed off of the distant mountains. Like a storm surge of an approaching hurricane, Forestberg had the ability to inflict damage from hundreds of miles away. Howard was told to arrive on the wrong day. That not only led to his losing the part he was promised, and a part he wanted to play his entire life, but at the time of his arrival, there were no more rooms available at the big house, a room he had also been promised as part of his contract. Howard was demoted to the hayloft. Through no fault of his own, Howard had been remade by the cruelest of gods, human error. Howard, like me, chose to stay. He chose the theater. Sometimes in life we have the choice of pursuing justice or pursuing our dreams. I found it's best to go with our dreams. It's always a risky proposition to want to get what we deserve. The next day, Mazel had found another cook, Vinny. Vinny was a short, wiry man with a twitch. At lunch, Tony told us privately, Not sure about the new cook. I think he's insane. You do, I asked. Tony nodded. Why? asked Beth. I had a conversation with him. Twice he mentioned a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel. From out of nowhere... I don't get it, Jean asked. Tony shrugged. I asked him if he had always been a cook. He said he was a short-order cook in the Navy for 20 years. I think, so far, so good. Then he asked me if I've ever driven a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel. I said no. He said he did, in Germany. Drove it on the Autobahn. He told me it was the finest car ever made. He said he's been saving money for years, and when he gets enough, he asked me what I think he's going to buy. I say, a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel? He looked at me and said, yeah, how did you know? I said, I guessed, and he kept staring at me the whole rest of the drive here. I looked at Beth. She shrugged. Could be crazy, she said. We stopped talking as Vinnie walked nervously past us through the dining hall into the kitchen area. Forestberg was now in full swing. All the resident artists had arrived, from a handful to about 30, overnight. Not since my first day at SMU was I hit by so many new faces that shared one common trait. We were all actors. There was Ross and Diana. Ross was the most confident and self-possessed of any of the new faces. He starred in The American Dream. But his real gift, which he would demonstrate at the slightest request, was his ability to play two recorders at the same time. And he could play them in harmony. For a finale, he would play one with his mouth and one with his nose. In harmony. I was certain this feat had gotten him laid on more than one occasion. Diana was gorgeous. She seemed to straddle two unlikely worlds, she was a glamorous hippie. She was the first one smitten by Ross's undeniable charm, and I believe she went on to become a notable television news person in the New York, New Jersey area. There was Big Owen and Little Owen. Little Owen was an apprentice. He suffered from some kind of kidney or glandular problem that always made him smell like urine. He was a good fellow, He had a wonderful energy and was appealing on stage as long as you weren't sitting in the first row. His affliction was certainly his prison. I never knew him long enough to know if he ever found his doorway. Big Owen played John Worthing, the other leading role in The Importance of Being Earnest. Big Owen was the opposite of Little Owen. Big Owen was tall and tan and classically handsome. I assumed he was one of the up-and-coming actors from Manhattan, At one break in rehearsal, I wandered over to get to know him a little bit better. I can't believe we're going to open in two days, I said. Big Owen laughed. Yeah, it's a little crazy. So, do you live in New York? No, not really. I move around. Oh, I asked, what do you do? Owen smiled. You want the real story or the one I tell the police? Uh, maybe both? Why don't we start with the one you tell the police? Fisherman. I am a professional fisherman, and I have been. I fished the North Atlantic, the Great Lakes. And what's the real story? Smuggler. That's my real job. What do you smuggle? I asked. Guns and drugs. Well, mainly guns. I go back and forth from New York to Canada. How did you become a smuggler? I asked. Oh, like anything else, I guess. I was good at it. But I always wondered if I could act. It was time for me to disappear for a while. So I saw this ad in the Village Voice and I thought, hey, why not? I auditioned and I got in. Well, congratulations. Maybe you should consider a career change. Owen laughed. "Eh, Probably not. What are you getting paid? $10 a week? Owen laughed harder and patted me on the back. No, probably not. And he walked away to get more coffee. Auditions were held for the next shows. There were two children's shows, a world premiere of a musical version of Tom Jones, written by Al and Sally Meisel, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and the season would close with The Glass Menagerie. I was hopeful that Beth would get cast in something worthy of her talents. The prison of Beth's life was that she was often overlooked and never appreciated for her considerable talent. It was probably her looks. She was short and cute and blonde and from the South, and now she had freckles. She would not be your first choice for a leading lady, except maybe for Juliet. At Forestburg, she was overlooked as well. She got cast as a servant girl in Tom Jones and a fairy in Midsummer Night's Dream. She had a total of maybe three lines if you counted fairy squeaks. I'm sure this hurt Beth's feelings. I've always found it especially hard to be disrespected by people who had none to give. She could have played Hermia in Midsummer Night's Dream, and she would have been great. But director Frederick Bailey didn't know Beth, and was inclined to cast one of the resident artists who were being paid to perform. Sidebar It should be noted that Frederick Bailey became one of Beth's strongest advocates years later in Los Angeles. He wrote parts for her in his plays that showed off her comedic talents. And then he celebrated her successes as a writer louder and more passionately than just about anyone. It was opening night for the importance of being earnest. I walked on stage before they opened the house. I checked the stage lights, see if they came on. Yes. Curtain was working. Check. Tony walked up to me and wished me well. He left to offer his wishes to Jean, who was more nervous than she had to be. Jean kept complaining that she was a dancer, she was not an actress, she was in over her head. But Jean had a quality beyond her beauty. She had a good heart, and she didn't lie. Those attributes are tangible to an audience. She was enormously likable on stage. I was still waiting for a catastrophe to sabotage the evening. But it looked like clear sailing. It was time to suit up. I went down to the dressing room. I put on my shirt and my collar and my cuffs. I tied my tie. I grabbed my Edwardian breeches. And there was something wrong. These pants were tiny. Incredibly tiny. They couldn't be mine. I ran in my underwear to the woman who was in charge of the costumes. Uh, Excuse me. I don't think these are my pants. She took the pants. She looked at her sheet. You're Stephen, and you're Algernon. And good show, by the way. Thank you, I said. No, no, no. She said, these are yours. I took your measurements. 32 waist, 34 inseam. Yeah, but these can't be a 32 waist. And then I thought of Maisel putting out all of his white bread. Was it possible I could have been putting on pounds and not knowing it? The stage manager called. We're opening the house. We'll start in about 15 minutes. Right, I said. Thank you. The seamstress finished inspecting my pants. Oh, I found the problem. (sighs) Thank goodness. These pants don't have a 32 waist. They're a 23 waist. 23 waist? Yes. Well, I think the last time I had a 23 waist was when I was 10. Ten minutes, the stage manager called backstage. I heard the sound of people finding their seats and reading their programs. You know, it could be dyslexia. What could be? Your pants. I don't understand. Well, I wrote 32 waist, but the tailor has a little problem with his vision, and I bet he saw 23. That must be it. What? Do I have pants? Oh, of course. I just have to open them up in the back. Well, we start in about five minutes. Will they be ready? Well, I'll do my best. I ran backstage. Howard Roller was playing a small role of Lane the butler. It was his consolation prize for doing nothing wrong. Howard was getting loose. He noticed me in my underwear. No pants? Uh, not yet. Howard smiled and walked away. No one communicated the pants problem to Maisel. He mounted the stage for his pre-show talk. The stage manager called out, Places! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another season at the Forestburg Summer Theater. Tonight, we have the always delightful comedy of Oscar Wilde and the importance of being earnest. I was running around backstage thinking of options if I didn't get my pants. None came to mind. Maisel continued, For the last 30 years, we've strived to present the best theater in the world. Upcoming, we have the premiere of a musical version of Tom Jones, written by myself and my wife Sally. There was polite applause from the hometown crowd. Thank you, thank you. It is a great show, even if I say so myself. Then we will follow with comedy from the immortal William Shakespeare. Midsummer Night's Dream... "'So please get your tickets in the lobby at intermission. "'And now, without further ado, the importance of being earnest!' "'The curtain went up. I still had no pants. "'Howard Roller walked on stage. The audience applauded. "'Howard nodded politely as he began comedic improvisations with his feather duster. "'I yelled the first line of the play from the wings. "'Did you hear what I was playing, Lane?' Howard responded and continued to dance around the stage with his feather duster to the delight of the audience. A seamstress rushed up and handed me my pants. I kept shouting from the wings as I buttoned up my fly. I made it onto the stage by the time Big Owen made his entrance, and the play went on without further incident. That night, we celebrated outside the dining hall with a cold beer. Beth and I finally got to see the stars in the mountains of New York. Tony and Jean joined us. We laughed about the pants. We honored what a trooper Howard Roller was under terrible circumstances. I felt such victory. I was proud. I kept my head, and we had escaped catastrophe. I hadn't yet learned. The catastrophe's motto is, Tomorrow is another day. Al Maisel declared the importance of being earnest a smashing success. Probably because a meteor didn't hit the theater. To answer the groundswell of popularity, he announced he was adding special matinees to the show. We would be performing for Otisville one afternoon this week. Tony looked at me and shook his head. Oh, God, no. What? This could be rough. What's rough, Tony? Otisville. It's a prison. A prison? Yeah. We're doing the importance of being earnest for a prison? Looks like it. The next day, buses with bars on the windows started pulling up in front of the theater. Lines of shackled prisoners and overalls were let off of the bus. Men with shotguns walked them into the theater and ordered them where to sit. Big Owen and I were backstage peeking through the curtain. Big Owen looked at me, pulled his Edwardian coat back, revealing a gun he had clipped to his belt. Then he winked at me and nodded. The curtain rose, lights up, the play began. Act One runs about an hour. There was not a sound, not a laugh, not a snicker, not even the sound of chains rattling. All we could feel on stage was a growing hatred for English farce. The final scene of Act One is the famous muffin scene. Big Owen and I were eating muffins in an English garden, talking about the proper way to eat muffins. The act ended. The curtain came down to no applause, nothing but a single voice from the audience saying, How much longer do we have to listen to all this goddamn bullshit? And we still had two acts to go. Howard Roller consoled us by saying, In the words of Oscar Wilde, Art is rarely intelligible for the criminal classes. This performance for Otisville was better than when Maisel made them watch his musical version of Cinderella. Prince Charming was shot in the head with a zip gun. He recovered, but it left a mark. But in a destruction, everything leaves its mark. In the midst of the season, the schedule of Forrestburg resembled an oscillating fan on high speed. It was impossible to track the motion of any single blade. And yet you knew it was working when you felt the breeze. There was breakfast, followed by a movement class taught by Gene or a voice class taught by Ron. There were rehearsals for the next play concurrent with rehearsals for the next children's matinee. And sometimes you had to run back and forth between rehearsals. Then came lunch followed by a matinee performance of some sort, it was either a children's musical or a performance for Otisville or a show for a new terrible audience, something called the Sunshine Club. The Sunshine Club was a group from the local home for children and young adults with severe mental problems. Severe. There was no way the Sunshine Club could understand what was happening on stage. If they could, they wouldn't be in the Sunshine Club. I don't think the performances helped anyone. It often terrified. There was screaming when anyone came on stage in costume. Objects were thrown at us. There was a constant din of crying and talking and shouting. But Maisel got money from the state to do the shows. So he took it, and they came. It was a toss-up as to which we dreaded the most, doing Aladdin for Otisville or A Midsummer Night's Dream for the Sunshine Club. I still tremble at the thought of it. After the matinees, there were more rehearsals, and then dinner of white bread with either tongue or spaghetti or fish sticks. No fruit or vegetables as we know them. Jean once asked Sally Mazel if they could at least put a pitcher of milk on the table. Sally shook her head and said, If we put milk out, people will just drink it. As evening approached, we prepared and performed the main show. And if anyone had any energy left, we met in the dining hall for beer and music. The music was provided by a radio on the refrigerator. At the end of this seemingly never-ending day, I would lie on the single wooden bunk bed with Beth. We would hold on to each other and talk. Occasionally we would kiss, until one of the pre-teen apprentices came into the room and climbed into her bunk. Everything's a doorway. And everything's a prison. I never calculated when I longed for Beth to come and spend the summer with me that there was nowhere to be in love. There was no time to be in love. Proximity only heightened impossibility. Just like doing Shakespeare for the Sunshine Club. We had begun rehearsals for the musical version of Tom Jones, and I was constantly surprised at how good the music was, not just for Tom Jones, but for Cinderella and Aladdin as well. The tunes were memorable and often beautiful. I mentioned my admiration for the music to Al Mazel. Mr. Mazel smiled and looked off to the distant mountains. It was my brother, he was a musical genius. He wrote the music for Cinderella and Aladdin. He's the one who started this place. I had musical talent, sure, but not like my brother. He had genius. Genius. I was determined to keep this place going after he died, to keep the music alive more than anything. Do you still play and compose, Mr. Mazel? I asked. Al smiled. Yes. As a matter of fact... We have backers coming out from New York to take Tom Jones to Broadway. I think it's good enough. After that, Sally and I have been writing a follow-up, a musical based on South Pacific. South Pacific? I asked. Yes. But South Pacific is a musical, I said. Right. Everyone bases musicals on books or plays, but I can't think of anyone that has based a musical on another musical. I don't think it's ever been done. Maybe because it would be plagiarism. Maisel smiled at me like the old fox. Not if the music is different. You think? I don't know. I guess that's why they're lawyers. But I do know people like the music in South Pacific. A lot. I mean, they may be disappointed if they came to your South Pacific and they didn't hear, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. Maisel smiled and winked at me. But you haven't heard our music. No, sir, I haven't. Maybe later in the summer I could play you a few songs. I'd like that. Al Mazel invited some of his New York connections to see the opening of Tom Jones in hope of getting the ball rolling to move the show to Broadway in the fall. Pause! Even though it's decades after the fact, I still had to stop and walk away from my computer as I wrote these words. Delusion builds towers just as lasting as genius. They shine like beacons in the night just as bright as Isaac Newton or Einstein— to serve as protection for future travelers. We must always have the discernment to know which light we follow. Mazel introduced me to his friend Ira, a writer for Backstage Magazine in New York. Ira made the drive from the city to write a review of Tom Jones. I'm not sure what manner of blackmail Mazel had on Ira, but Al was certain we would get a rave. In the dressing room before the show, there was a bustle of activity. We were vocalizing, going over lines, putting on our costumes and wigs. We were infected by Al Maisel's ambition. None of us dreamed when we signed up for Summerstock, we would all end up on Broadway. My mind went to Jim McClure. If only he knew what he left behind when he drove away without even giving the place a chance. My reverie was interrupted by the sounds of big engines outside the barn. I went to look out a side window. It was three Sunshine Club buses. I ran out of the theater to find Mazel. This had to be a mistake. Maisel was talking to Ira outside the barn. I quickly introduced myself to Ira and asked if I could have a word with Al. Maisel stepped away with me into the night. Mr. Maisel, the Sunshine Club is here. Already? But you knew about this? Sure. I wanted a full house for the show tonight so Ira could see what a draw it would be. But Mr. Maisel, they're the Sunshine Club. They're enthusiastic. It's opening night. There's a lot of pressure. There's no way telling what they might do. When I was the genie in Aladdin, there was a riot when I came out of the bottle. Relax. The laugh, They'll scream, the show will be great. I ran backstage and prepared the others. The theater was packed. I peeked through the curtain. I saw they put all of the Sunshine Club in the front rows. Some were rocking in their seats. Some were staring into space. Then the music began. The curtain went up. I marched on stage with the other characters, and we began to sing. As the music grew, as the harmonies intertwined, as we danced, I saw traces of wonder transform some faces in the front row. Some of the rocking stopped. I saw absolute joy in some of their eyes, and then some of the older boys pulled down their pants and started to masturbate. Shelley Place, our leading lady, also an alum from SMU, playing Miss Sophia, almost fell off the stage in horror. But being the pro she was, she made it through to the end of the number and went off stage in a fury. At intermission, she let Al Mazel have it. She said it was impossible to do a good job on stage under these conditions. Maisel tried to calm her down. I know that was a bit over the line, but remember your theater history. Not all audiences were nice and polite like today. You're just playing to Shakespeare's audience. Shakespeare's audience? I understand why you're upset. Just remember, you're here to entertain. And let me tell you, they're loving the show. Shelley said quietly with suppressed rage, I know they're loving the show. That's obvious We finished the play The Sunshine Club boarded the buses And went home Ira wrote his review It was a rave He said the musical version of Tom Jones Was fresh, funny And a true delight All it needed was to be recast With better actors to be a hit on Broadway Glory
1: little glow fly a fire glow like an incandescent wire glow for the female of the species turn on the ac and the dc this night could use a little brightening light up you little old bug of lightning when you gotta glow you gotta glow glow little glow-worm glow worm glow that was Greetings from the Great Destruction, a series of stories told by actor Steven and you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, in this story you mentioned uh, reviews... Uh, and how, how influential <laughs> reviews can be. Do you still read reviews of uh, of your work, or do you, you kind of stay away from that stuff these
0: days? I, I stay away. The last review I read was when I was directing Miss Firecracker in 1984. It was my birthday, David. It was my birthday. And the show generally got great reviews, and the people who ran the theater said, Happy birthday, the New York Times wrote a think piece about you. And there on the New York Times, uh, obviously, they didn't read it. They handed me a Benedict Nightingale article that was pages and pages and pages talking about what an incompetent moron I was. And after that birthday present, David, I just don't read the reviews.
1: To be fair, Stephen, that is how I got my start in criticism. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm sorry.
0: Just stay away from me, buddy. Stay away. All right.
1: All right. Well, Stephen, if people want to listen to more of your stuff these days, ignore the haters. Go to yes. Tobolowskifiles.com. You can find all the episodes of the Tobolowski Files there. You can also go to Tobolowski com, find your tour dates, find your book links, all that stuff. How do you spell it, Stephen? That would be S T E P H E N T as in Tom, O B is in
0: Boy, O L O W S K Y. It's a Russian spelling, David.
1: All right. And um you can also find Steven performing live a few times in the next month, right? Where are you going to be performing, Stephen?
0: Well, I'm going to be at the Skirball. These are all Los Angeles dates because the book tour, thank goodness, is over. Uh, June 8th, that's a Thursday at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Skirball is a beautiful theater, and I'm going to be doing stories from the new book there. Also, June 18th, that's a Sunday evening at 7. I'm going to be doing a benefit at Theater 40 in Beverly Hills. And I will be doing stories maybe from both books, Dangerous Animals Club and uh, My Adventures with God. And also, we've added another date at my synagogue uh, in North Hollywood, Adad Ariel, and that's going to be the 21st of June at 7.30 in the evening, and I will be doing a story and a book signing from My Adventures with God.
1: All right, check Stephen out at those places. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, there's probably only uh, a couple episodes left of this season of The Files, is that right?
0: That is correct. We are nearing a uh, conclusion.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, as I promised at the beginning, we will let you guys know when you can expect future episodes. But uh, enjoy these while they last and know that uh, you should tune in next week and the week after for uh, more episodes of The Tobolowski Files. We'll see you guys later.
0: Adios. But Mr. Mazel, they're the Sunshine Club. Take two.